We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Good morning, Emmaus. It's always a uh, treat to be able to open the word with you all, and I'm grateful to be back in the pulpit this morning. It's been a minute for me. Uh, for those that don't know me, my name is Ronnie Kurtz. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's also, since it's been a while since I've been in the pulpit, let me just start off by saying how much I love and appreciate you all. I, I just adore you. I don't get to say it as much as I wish I could publicly, uh, via that I'm not in the pulpit as much as I used to be, but, but I do want to take a moment just to express my gratitude for you all. I've been a pastor at Emmaus since uh, the very beginning, so it's been just a little over seven years now. And even seven years in, I still, it still feels surreal to me that I get to pastor a people I love so dearly. So just hear that from one of your pastors today, and I know that's expressed by all of our pastors as well. We love and appreciate you. Well, we have a good amount of work to do today, so we will need to jump right in. However, before we do, I have so loved reading the Nicene Creed with you all week in and week out. It reminds us that that This is not all Christianity is. That's what's in this room, in this building. But we are a part of a global people. We are a part of a generational people. We have linked arms with brothers spanning both centuries and continents. So we will read the Nicene Creed together like we have each week. And actually, the Nicene Creed will take up a big portion of my sermon today. Uh, So we'll look at this creed that we've been reading. So let's start by reading the creed together and then praying for our time this morning. I think it'll be on the screen. Read this with me. We believe in one God, the Father all-governing, creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father, through whom all things came into being, who for us men and because of our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried and rose on the third day according to the scriptures, and ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom shall have no end and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who is worshiped and glorified together with the Father and Son, who spoke through the prophets And in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we confess one baptism for the remission of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now we've read the creed. We want to pray, but I do want to just mention this morning, we're going to pray for ourselves and for our time this morning. But I also, we just read the Nicene Creed, which reminds us that we're global Christians and The globe is hurting today. 
And, and so we want to, as we come to the Lord for ourselves this morning, we also want to intercede on behalf of our brothers and sisters, both in Afghanistan and in Haiti. Uh, if you've been following the news, you, you've probably seen the rise of the Taliban in Afghanistan. And one reporter from World Magazine reported that uh, the, the leaders of the House, the House Church Network in Afghanistan has already been warned by the Taliban that they, they're aware of their existence and they know what they're doing. And so we want to pray both a prayer of protection and an imprecatory prayer on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. And we want to pray for those affected by the earthquake in Haiti. So let's go to the Lord and pray. God, you are God, and that is good news. We, we, the, the world is hurting. We come into this place with a lot of questions. Why is this happening to our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan? And I'm just thankful that in times like this, I'm not on the throne, but you are. God, we read out of Psalm 50 that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. You know the name of every hair on every Afghan Christian's head. And you love them dearly. God, we pray for them. We pray for their country. God, anyone who would do harm to our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, may you either save them or may you crush them. We come to you and ask you for a hedge of protection around our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world. May you be glorified in this. May you show off your might, and may you show off your gentleness. God, we also pray for Haiti. Would you comfort a grieving nation? May, may you comfort those who have lost loved ones. May you show off in a way that we see that what, what nature means for evil, what terrorists mean for evil, you mean for good. May people trust you more because of these happenings. And may you be glorified in the world. God, may the nations rejoice and be glad in you. May they find delight in your gospel and treasure in your son. God, and we pray for ourselves this morning as well. We need an eye full of you. We, we need to, to be put under the reality that you, triune God, you are providential and sovereign over every square inch of this universe, including our lives this very morning. We come in as a people with a vast array of emotions. There is shame in this room. There is doubt in this room. There is hurt in this room. There is anger in this room. There is rejoicing in this room. There is victory in this room and so much in between. And God, may you be the Lord of it all. We need you. May you comfort the hurting. May you heal the broken. May you reveal yourself to the doubting. And in everything we do, may you look down in delight and be glorified. And may we be edified. It's in Jesus' mighty, mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, this is the fourth sermon in our seven-part series on the Trinity, which means this morning represents that we are at the halfway point of the series. Given that this is the halfway point, I thought it might be a good idea to spend a couple of minutes, just a few, since Sam did such a good job at the beginning, just to remind us why we're doing a sermon series like this. Some of you have expressed deep joy in this series. You have loved it. You have loved plunging into the Nicene Creed and these great doctrines and all of the texts we've, we've went through. Some of you have expressed 
this is really tough. This is not easy, normal Sunday morning kind of sermons. And so I thought it would be good just to remind us, give us two quick reasons why a seven-part series on the Trinity is worth it. Here's my first reason. God is worth it. That's the first reason. Simply put, the Christian faith is about God. Even this morning, think about this. We read God's word, which will tell us God's story about God's glory. And this very church, Emmaus, is full of God's people that God redeemed that we might glorify God and enjoy God forever. In Christendom, we are about him. However, sadly, to our dismay, so many Christians today prefer the gifts over the giver. So many today are interested in what they can get out of God and, and never stop to get an eye full of him. Right? Never, never stop to gaze fully at him. Simply put, many who call themselves Christians today just don't know God. Some folks will even claim to love God who never take the time to know him. This is a major problem. And I love how Jen Wilkin, a great Bible teacher, uh, once put it. She said, your heart cannot love what your mind does not know. That's a good word for us. I, I mean, imagine, imagine me coming up here today and telling you guys how much I love my wife. And you say, well, that's sweet and nice enough, Ronnie, but what do you love about your wife? And I say, man, what I love about my wife is her blonde curly hair. And I love how extroverted she is, how she just loves to be the center of attention. You guys would say, uh, I don't think you're thinking of your wife. Because those two things are not true of my wife at all. My wife has straight, very dark hair, and she's a severe introvert. She's not even here, and she's uncomfortable with me using her as the example right now. Sadly, that's exactly what happens in a lot of Christendom these days. People will ascribe worth to the Lord and even praise him for things that aren't even true about him. Because we don't stop to take time to know the one we love. Second, first reason we should do a series like this is because God is worth it. Second reason we should do a series like this is because the Bible consistently instructs us to love God with our minds. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, which we know God ultimately is, think about these things. And maybe my favorite of the three, 1 Corinthians 3, 18, in which Paul says, and we all with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord and we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. So it's by beholding him that we are transformed into, one, into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. And so what's the purpose of this series? We just simply want to behold him. That's what we're after. We want to behold our God. Even with terrorists taking over countries and earthquakes shaking the foundations of the world, we think the most important thing we can do as a people is to behold him. 
Let me finish off this little uh, justification of our series with a little C.S. Lewis quote. This was in an introduction that he wrote to a book called On the Incarnation, and I think it's absolutely amazing. If you need one more reason why you should just sit and behold God and dwell on the deep things of God that we call theology, listen to this. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Nor would I admit any sharp division between the two kinds of books. For my own part, I tend to find that doctrinal books, books that deal with doctrine, are often more helpful in devotion than devotional books. And I rather suspect that the same experience might await many of others. I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that their heart sings unbidden while they work their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. Now, you might forsake the pipe and the teeth part, but I, I, I say you should press into difficult pieces of theology and have the posture that your heart might sing unabidden. So then, together, as a church, we will press into the difficult doctrine of the Trinity in hopes to catch an eyeful of the glory of God, that in beholding him, we might be transformed from one degree of glory to another by the renewal of our minds as we think on that which is good, that which is true, and that which is beautiful, God himself. So a little caveat, as you've seen already in this series, is that these sermons are a little different. I even feel a little insecure about coming back to the pulpit with this kind of sermon because it's something between a lecture and a sermon, and I even prayed that the Lord would take my lecture and make it a sermon this morning somehow. So give me grace as we press into uh, this next doctrine of the Trinity. All right, that's my quickish exhortation to continue leaning in. So what are we going to cover today? What doctrine are we going to cover today in regard to the Trinity? Well, I have the wonderful task of covering a very important doctrine, and that is the doctrine of eternal generation. In week one of the series, Pastor Sam got our hearts and minds ready for the Trinity, for a series like this. In week two of the series, Pastor Joseph discussed how the Trinity is revealed to us. In week three of the series, Pastor Matthew preached about the vital doctrine of simplicity and how the Trinity is one in essence. The question we will focus on in this sermon is this. Given what we discussed last week, that the Trinity is one in essence, how are the persons of the Trinity different? We know they are one person, right? They have one essence. They're simple and unified. But at the same time, we know that the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. So there must be a way that while we say they are one in essence, that we can differentiate them in persons. How is this? How do we rightly differentiate between the persons of the Godhead? Well, there have been a number of attempts to answer this question. And sadly, many of them, in fact, most of them, have fallen short of Christian orthodoxy. Failing the test of scriptural witness, historical witness, and theological witness, most answers to what differentiates the persons of the Godhead are severely lacking. I'm going to argue by the end of this sermon that there is only one thing 
that separates the persons of the Godhead. To explain what I mean here, I want to tell you a little story. We're going to dive into church history for a second. I know some of you are uncomfortable with church history, you don't love it, but let me tell you something that a great theologian named Timothy George once said. God has been up to something in between the New Testament and your newspaper today. And in that span of history, his glory has been revealed for many, many to see. And we want to jump into one piece of that glorious story between the New Testament and your newspaper. Moreover, this story will treat, without exaggeration, one of the most important meetings in all of church history. So I challenge you to press in. Even if history isn't your thing, you don't consider yourself a history buff, listen as I tell you a bit of the story of Nicaea. If you could have been around roughly 200 years after the Bible, final words were written and recorded, somewhere in the 300s A.D., If you could have been around in that age, in Asia Minor, you would have likely been very familiar with a religious controversy that was boiling over in the the province. It was boiling over. In fact, if you would have been around in this time, even while you were shopping for your groceries at the local market, you might have heard chants, audible chants in the street. While you're there trying to decide what fruit to purchase, the chants get louder. There you are in the marketplace getting your weekly groceries and the chants get louder. The mobs get louder and the mob gets closer and closer. And eventually, the mob that is chanting while you're grocery shopping makes its way into the very market in which you reside and all of a sudden, their mumbling chant becomes clear and you hear they are, they are chanting this phrase, there was a time when he was not. There was a time when he was not. This might seem like a strange phrase to be chanting in the marketplace to us today, but this really happened. The religious controversy of that day became so heated that even the most common of lay folk without an ounce of theological training were doing demonstrations in the street. And as their chant came closer to you in the shop, there was a time when he was not. You might not know what that means sitting here today, but you would have very well known what it meant then. And what you would have known what it meant then was these people are saying, Jesus is not the Father. In fact, Jesus isn't even divine like the Father. For the Father has always been, but Jesus is merely a creation. There was a time when that creation was not. So here they are chanting, there was a time when he was not, trying to persuade and propagate a heretical view that Jesus is simply a created being who who came into existence like you and I came to existence at some point in time. Yes, he might be a great being, but he's simply a created being and nothing more. There was a time when he was not. This view later became named after a single man named Arius. We call it Arianism. This name, this man, Arius, was one of the predominant theologians of the third century. If you were alive in his day, you would have known his name. It is not an exaggeration to say that this man, Arius, is one of the most important heretics of the history of the church. And by the the way, when I use that word heresy, 
I don't mean just something that's wrong. I mean something that puts you outside of the bounds of what is considered Christianity. He was one of the most important heretics in history of the church, and historical documents note how brilliant he was. In his day, he argued with eloquence. He was persuasive. He often even turned his lectures into songs and chants so that the masses would take his difficult doctrines and sing them in the marketplaces, like our example of there was a time when he was not. They did this. They really did this. Arius did not believe that Jesus should be considered on the same level with the Father. He said that Jesus was great and he was even better than every creature, but he was not of the same glory or substance of the Father. Instead, Arius argued that Jesus was a created being, and while Jesus and the Father shared the same will, they wanted the same thing, they did not share the same essence. And his followers were growing. On the other side of the debate, you have another important theologian. In a city called Alexandria, is a hero of our faith that you might not even know the name of. This was a bishop. His name was Alexander. Yes, his name was Alexander, and he was the bishop of Alexandria. So we call him Alexander of Alexandria. It's a little confusing. A lot of Alex going on. But Alexander argued that Arius was doing a major disservice to the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. He said that what makes the Father, the Son, and the Spirit one is not the fact that they are merely united in will, but they are united in essence. They are actually unified in essence of the same substance. So, for Alexander, whatever the Father is, the Son is, and the Spirit is, because they are of the same essence. There was never a time when Jesus was not. The Son is not, or the Son is of the same essence as the Father, and therefore will share the eternality with the Father. So there was never a time when Jesus was not. To be of the Father's essence is to be eternal like the Father. It's a bit reductionistic to boil down the disagreement of, between Alexander and Arius and really the disagreement that made up Nicaea as, as being between these two individuals, Arius and Alexander. That's a bit reductionistic. It was bigger than that. And in fact, when the, when the council is called and they come to the city known as Nicaea, Alexander brought with him arguably a figure even more important than himself. Alexander brought a young theological student who was a deacon of his named Athanasius. Athanasius never spoke in Nicaea probably. He was too young. They didn't allow deacons to speak, only bishops. Only bishops and theologians could speak at the council, but Athanasius was there as a 27-year-old taking notes of all of Arius' arguments, and it's really Athanasius after the Council of Nicaea, who, who deals the death blow to this heresy. However, we're going to focus on Arius and Alexander as our representatives because they're good windows into the important meeting that took place. So it's a bit reductionistic to look at them alone, but they're a good window. So this debate becomes public, the debate about who is Jesus? Is he divine? Is he merely a created being who is like the Father in many ways and shares the will of the Father, or is he divine? Is he of the same substance as the Father, one with the Father? This debate rages and rages. It becomes public. The masses become divided. And Christianity was severely ununited. Well, the debate becomes so contentious that an emperor, 
of the Roman Empire eventually has to step in. It becomes so heated, the debate becomes so heated, the very emperor of the Roman Empire, Constantine, has to step in. Roughly in the year 324, 325, Constantine, the emperor of the vast Roman Empire, decides to call a council to decide once and for all, what is the Christian church going to believe about this man named Jesus? So he calls for a council. Roughly 325, something, about, something around 300 delegates come together because Constantine calls theologians and bishops from all over the world. Eastern Christians are represented, Western Christians are represented, and they, we call this the first ecumenical council. By ecumenical, we just mean global. Right, so this, this council is called together with Christians from every country in the known world, basically, to settle the question, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Are we going to count him as divine or not? There were two words that were used in this debate that are very important. They might seem silly because they're foreign, long words, but they were very important to this debate, and they're very important to our doctrine of the Trinity. And those words are this, homoousion and homoousion. Let me spell them for you, note takers. Homoousion is H-O-M-O-O-U-S-I-O-N. H-O-M-O-O-U-S-I-O-N. Homoousion is exactly the same, just with an I of a difference. H-O-M-O-I-O-U-S-I-O-N. The first word, if you break it down, you, you can see where, 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 where it gets at. The word homo means the same. The word ousion means substance. So homoousion means the same substance. Homoousion the root word there, homoi, means similar. And usion means substance, so a similar substance. While the followers of Arius argued that Jesus was homoi usion, he was a similar substance as the Father, they denied that he was homo usion, the same substance as the Father. So, to settle the debate, Constantine calls for a meeting of bishops and theologians from around the world, and they come together uh, roughly at the end of May. May 20th, my birthday, by the way, is uh, typically the day that's ascribed as the beginning of the Council of Nicaea, and they, they debate and collaborate together for about a month. So 30 days of collaboration and argumentation and debate about what the future of the church's doctrine regarding Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is going to be. Arius and Alexander themselves were both at this meeting. In fact, Arius gets up to speak, and with power and eloquence, he convinces many delegates at Nicaea. In fact, there are historical records of people thinking that the Arians were going to win, that Nicaea was going to side with Arius. We learn from historical records that in his presentation to the council, Arius even breaks into song. And in the middle of his debates and arguments, he begins singing this. The uncreated God has made the Son a beginning of things created. And by adoption has God made the Son into an advancement of his self. Catchy song so far, right? Yet the Son's substance, sings Arius, is removed from the substance of the Father. The Son is not equal to the Father. Nor does he share in the same substance. God is the all-wise Father, and the Son is just the teacher of his mysteries. The members of the Holy Trinity share unequal glories. 
Arius sings this song, and now some of you, some of you history nerds know uh, there is another fun part of this story. We don't know. We cannot prove if this part is true, so don't take it to the bank, but it's fun to mention. We do know there was a man there, uh, a bishop who was for Homoousion, for Alexander, named St. Nick. We base St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, off of this particular saint. The story goes that at this point, when Arius begins singing this song about how the son is not the same as the father, that this man, St. Nick, began to try to rip his own ears off. And he gets so fed up with Arius's words that he gets up and punches him in the face and physically assaults him at the Council of Nicaea. We're not sure if this is true, but it's a much cooler version of Santa Claus that you should be teaching your children. Something like ho, ho, homoousion, am I right? That may be the nerdiest thing I've ever said in this pulpit. While we could talk about so many fascinating aspects of the Council of Nicaea, we'll bring the story to a close by saying this. God was good. After the 30 days of deliberation, the bishops and the theologians, after they have gone back and forth looking at the text, examining theology, examining philosophy, examining all of the arguments, the council decided to side with the Alexandrians who argued for homoousion. Jesus is the same substance as the Father. Homoousion wins out the day. Arius and many of his followers actually get exiled after the council. By the grace of God and the work of faithful theologians like Alexander of Alexandria and later Athanasius of Alexandria, it becomes the official established teaching of the Christian church that we believe that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity sharing the same essence as the Father and that he, as the creed we just read this morning says, is very God from very God, light from light, consubstantial with the Father and sharing in one unified essence. That's the decision of Nicaea. So then, how does the decision of Nicaea, this council, how does the Nicene Creed relate to our doctrine today of eternal generation? How does it answer the question, how is Jesus different from the Father? Because we've seen clearly in the Creed how it answers the question, how is he the same as the Father, right? He's the homoousia of the Father. He's the same substance. But how is he different? Homoousion means that Jesus doesn't have enough attributes or enough power or enough wisdom to be God, but that he is the same attributes, the same power, the same wisdom as the Father. But the creed was not only brilliant in its exhortation of how the Son and the Father and the Spirit are the same, but also in how they were different. Don't miss the important line in the creed that we've read each week. I'll read it again. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time. Light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father. That's how the creed reads. Jesus was not created as if there was a time in which he did not exist. Instead, Jesus is eternally generated from the Father. The, the, the creed uses the word begotten. Jesus was begotten, not made, from the Father. And this, was, this word begotten gets at the same idea of generation. Jesus comes forth from the Father. 
and we here arrive at our vital doctrine of eternal generation. Listen, it's not an exaggeration to say that you cannot have a doctrine of the Trinity without a doctrine of eternal generation. You cannot do it. What we mean by the doctrine of eternal generation is both brilliantly complicated and wondrously simple. We know what it means to be generated, don't we? You and I were generated. We were generated. Our parents generated us or begot us at a particular moment in time on May 20th in the early 90s. I was generated by Ron Kurtz and Joanne Kurtz. However, unlike the generation that, that Jesus shares with the Father, my generation has a timestamp on it. But Jesus' generation from the Father is eternal. So in the same way or in a, in a shadow of a way that I am from my Father, Jesus is from his Father. But his coming forth from the Father, his generation, his begottenness is an eternal begottenness. There was never a time when Jesus wasn't and then his begottenness started and he came into existence. Rather, Jesus has always been begotten from the Father. He is eternally begotten from the Father. Another difference between my being generated by my parents and Jesus' being generated by the Father is that in my being generated, I only receive the shadow of my parents. I get their DNA. Right? I get some of their traits. I get some of their genes, but not all of them. Jesus receives the exact or not receives, Jesus is the exact imprint of the glory of God. He doesn't receive the shadow of the Father. He is of the substance of the Father. He is of the very essence, not the shadow, the substance. The Son comes from the Father, as one theologian, Augustine, says, it gives us meaning when we call him the Son. Right? Have you ever thought about that, why we call the Father the Father and the Son the Son? Why don't we refer to them as the three brothers? We call him the father because he's actually the father who begets someone. We call him the son because he's actually the son who has a begetting father. Right? This familial language we use for the Trinity is not a mistake. We use it on purpose. The father is actually a father and the son is actually a son. And we'll see there's actually a reason we call the spirit the spirit as well next week, I think, or maybe two weeks from now. So what makes the Trinity one, to recap here? What makes the Trinity one? Homoousion. They have the same unified, simple substance. What makes the Trinity different? Well, Pastor Matthew actually stole a touch of my thunder last week, and he gave you the answer. He said the only thing that differentiates the persons of the Trinity is what we call the eternal relation of origin. The eternal relation of origin. The Father is the unbegotten. That's what makes him uniquely the Father. The Son is eternally generated. That is what makes him uniquely the Son. And the Spirit is spirated or eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's what makes him uniquely the Spirit. So what makes them different? They have the same essence but that essence subsides differently. The Father's essence, or the essence that is God subsides in the Father by unbegottenness, 
the essence that is God subsides in the Son by eternal generation, and the essence that is God subsides in the Holy Spirit by spiration and procession. This is the only thing, hear that very clearly, this is the only thing that differentiates the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The only thing that eternally differentiates them. Now, it has temporal causes, right? It's not the Father who becomes incarnate. It's not the Father who dies on the cross. It's not the the Spirit who who comes at, at Golgotha. No, it's the Son. These eternal realities bear temporal consequences, but this is the only eternal thing that differentiates the members of the Godhead. It is not, hear me, it is not the roles they play eternally. It is not a division of will. It is not a division of essence. It is not in some mode they appear in. It is not a part they play in society. None of these things are orthodox explanations of how the persons of the Godhead are unique. Only the mode in which they subside makes them unique. So then, how does the doctrine of eternal generation play a role in our very lives today? This is a fun question. And this, the intersection of theology and our day-to-day life, that's where I love to live my life. How does the doctrine of eternal generation play a role in our lives today? Well, I'm glad you asked. The scriptures have a plethora to say about what we call eternal generation. And in the words of scripture themselves, we see the treasure trove that this doctrine really is. For example, just think about, you don't have to turn there, just think about some of these passages that I'm about to read. John 3, 16, think about what the passage says about Jesus' generation and then what he can do, okay? Think about that. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his what? His only begotten. If your translation says unique, that's not a great translation. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son. For what purpose? So that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, 9, In him, him being Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. And finally, John 5, 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus' eternal life in himselfness is a generated life in himselfness. Just look at the vital realities that are tied to the doctrine of eternal generation. Jesus is uniquely qualified to save us because he's eternally generated. 
He is uniquely qualified to redeem us. He is uniquely qualified to uphold the universe by speaking in the word of his power by virtue of his eternal generation. Simply put, these passages come together with theological reasoning behind them to declare that the Son is God. He is of the same substance as God. He's not merely like God or similar to God. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is God. He is all of the attributes. He is all of the power. He is all of the wisdom of the Father. So why does this matter? Why does it matter that we consider the doctrine of eternal generation? Let me give you two reasons in closing. It matters first because we want to know our Lord Jesus Christ in any fact about him regardless of how difficult it is to comprehend, is worth knowing because he is our treasure of treasures. Any fact about him is worth treasuring. He's that good. Not everything about you is worth knowing. I know that's really mean to say, not everything about you. I know social media would have you believe the opposite, that you should publicize every single one of your opinions, but not everything about you is worth knowing. Everything about Jesus is worth knowing. Everything. He is that Glorious. Second, and hear me, it's worth it to study the doctrine of eternal generation because you and I have a God-sized problem. Like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we have all laid our treacherous hands on that fruit which was forbidden, and we have all sunk our sinful teeth into disobedience. You and I and every single person who has ever lived has committed treason and rebellion against the very God who breathed out the stars and tells the ocean where to stop. We have committed treason against the one who the lightning asks, where should I strike today? In your disobedience, you have enlisted yourselves amongst the numbers who were enemies of the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. As you wallowed in your disobedience, as you followed the prince of the air, as you took part in the spirit of the age, you became an alien to the security and the love of God. And remember, this is no mere creature that you've offended. This is God. You and your sin have made a God-sized problem, and it will take a God-sized solution. If Arius was right, if Arius was right that Jesus was a mere creature, he would have never been qualified to help other creatures solve their creator problem. The gospel necessitates that the son is of the same substance of the father. If his coming to earth is going to be good news at all, he must be God. We need the Son to have the same substance as the Father that he might be our once and for all sacrifice. We need the Son to have the same substance as the Father that he might truly propitiate the wrath of God which was coming for us like a freight train. We need the Son to have the same substance as the Father so he can be eternal and therefore forever plead our case in intercession. We need the Son to have the same substance as the Father that he might tie a rope around the neck of our despair and throw it into the 
see. We need the Son to have the same substance as the Father so that when we are united to him, we can actually cry, Abba, Father, and like the real Son, our brother and vine, we can mean it, that he really is our Father. We need the Son to have the same substance as the Father that he might be uniquely qualified to separate us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. We need the Son to have the same substance as the Father. So on that great day, when he cracks open the sky and he comes back to judge the living and the dead, and we get the great glimpse of his blood-stained robe and the sword of justice coming from his mouth, we need the Son to be of the same substance of the Father so that we can say, in that man, in Christ Jesus, the God-man, truly God from truly God, we have a God-sized solution to our God-sized problem. A Jesus who is not eternally generated from the Father is not good news to us. Jesus being eternally generated from the Father guarantees that Jesus is of the same divine substance as the Father. And it guarantees that Jesus being of the same divine substance as the Father, he is qualified to redeem us. A Jesus who is a mere creature is of no hope to us. Far from being an abstract doctrine relegated to the confines of obscurity, the doctrine of eternal generation is a well of joy and a fountain of hope in the gospel. We need this man from Nazareth to be the same substance as the Father. For in this man of Nazareth, we live and move and have our being, and he is our only treasure and hope. Let's pray. God, we confess that we are too small and insignificant to do these kinds of things properly. What we want here is to dwell on the being of the second person of the Trinity. But here's a problem, Jesus. You are infinite and I'm finite. God, you are grand and I am small. You are significant and I have insignificance. So God, we need you. Hebrews 6 declares that we will only move from the elementary doctrines of Christ onto maturity if you will it. So God, we are asking, would you permit us? Would you permit us intellectual maturity? Would you permit us contemplation on your deep things such that we can behold you and be transformed into your image from one degree of glory to another? We need you. Be with us, Lord. God, I pray even right now, if there is someone in the room who doesn't know you, who hasn't experienced you, Jesus, who hasn't in your face seen the face of the loving Father, would you melt their heart of stone right now? Would you, would you get, turn their heart of stone into a heart of flesh and may they treasure you forevermore? For those of us who have trusted in you, Lord, would you just edify us and strengthen us in the knowledge of the Trinity? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com.